Well, I've been humbled a couple times this week. I was humbled walking up here because I remembered after making my Yankees joke that I really don't have very much to say this year. So that was one thing. <laughs> but the other uh, humbling has come as I was working on this sermon. Because it was one of those times where As I looked over the passage and, and just was thinking about God's providence in having me preach on this particular passage, I just chuckled. And I, and I thought to myself, why, why am I the one preaching on this? I mean prayer and loving others as yourself, which is essentially overcoming your selfishness. I mean, basically, these are two topics that I have no business being up here and preaching about. You know, why am I up here this morning? I mean, I, I, I know little about these topics, but I almost feel like I could talk this morning about the difference between knitting and crocheting, or gravitational collapse and how it plays a, a role in creating black holes, and you'd get more out of it than if I talked about prayer and loving others as ourselves. I mean, really? I mean, I, I struggle. I struggle with prayer, and and I know that some of you, you know, I come up here every so often, and you hear me lead us in prayer, and you think, boy, that that Pastor Tom, he sure can pray, you know. And some of you actually have come up to me and, and said something like that, or complimented me, and and my first thought, and I think I've even said it, is, yeah, I, I wish my personal prayer life was as rich as that prepared prayer was this morning, because you know I'm struck with, it's just frightening how many. Days can pass for me with little or or no prayer. You know how how do you feel when you hear one of your pastors say that? Um, does it bother you? Does it surprise you? I I, I hope not. I, I it shouldn't surprise you because I'm I'm just like you. I'm a fallen, sinful human being who struggles. Not only with prayer but with loving others as myself. I mean. If anything, marriage and having children has taught me that I am an incredibly selfish and self-centered man. So why does God have me up here this morning? Well, I think in his providence I'm up here because you're just like me. Because you struggle with praying regularly and richly. Because you struggle with overcoming your own selfishness and self-centeredness to love others as yourself. So this morning, even though I feel like I'm, I'm preaching mainly to myself, we're all going to look at this passage in Matthew and let it minister to all of us and to speak to all our hearts and pray that it will change us. So if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. We're going to look at three things this morning. The first is the Son's command to keep on praying. The second is the Father's response to us of giving good gifts. And the third is the Spirit's work in us to sanctify our selfishness and self-centeredness. So join with me as I, as I read Matthew 7, 7 through 12. Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? 
If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Please pray with me. Uh, Father, I'm, I'm once again struck with um, the, the privilege and the responsibility of being up here and preaching from your word. And I pray that nothing would come out of my mouth that goes against your word or contradicts it. Please use me, this weak, fragile vessel, to feed these sheep and to touch their hearts and make them more like their big brother, Jesus. Soften our hearts even now and equip me even now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, the context for the Son's command to us to keep on praying, the context is that Jesus is talking about prayer here. I mean, it's our asking, our seeking, our knocking. It's all uh, being done, directed towards our Heavenly Father, and it's our Heavenly Father who is that we're receiving from, who's responding to us. But what's interesting about this is that Jesus is, is technically giving a command here. The Greek verbs, ask, seek, knock, are present imperatives. And imperatives are commands, and when it's joined with the present tense, it has this idea of continuous action or repeated action. It's kind of like this. Um, you know, every, every week, usually when Pastor Dave preaches, he finishes by saying, you know, you need to pray. He gives that little mini command after the sermon, right? Meaning, this week, after hearing this sermon, you need to pray right now where Jesus is talking about a, a repeated action, a continuous action. And he's saying, keep on seeking, keep on asking, keep on knocking. He's calling us to a lifestyle that's characterized by prayer. But the question is, is why does he use you know, this kind of force? Well, I think, it's, I think it's because he knows that we're all going to struggle with praying consistently and regularly. And the question is, why do we struggle? I bet if I were to ask most of you in this room, including myself, most of us would say, well, I just never can seem to find the time. It's just so busy and so hectic. And I've even said that uh, as well. And I don't know if I'm buying that because I don't know about you, but for me, I always seem to find the time for those things that I really want to do. So I think that not having the time or finding the time may be more of a symptom than an actual reason. I think... A main reason that we struggle with prayer is because we forget or don't recognize our utter dependence upon our Heavenly Father. I mean, dependence is still kind of a dirty word in our culture, right? I mean, we're, we're Americans. We, we declared and we fought for independence, right? Self-sufficiency is a, is a badge of honor. We can climb any mountain, overcome any obstacle. You know, Nothing limits our success but our hard work. If we just work hard enough, we can get whatever we want. We don't need anybody, right? We're Americans. And you see, praying requires humility and acknowledgement of need. Asking requires you know, the, humbly, the humble acknowledgement that you need something that you don't have. And seeking flows from admitting that you can't find something on your own. And knocking implies that there's a door you can't open or an obstacle you can't overcome. I mean, prayer implies weakness, and this flies in the face of our culture. 
of our individualistic culture. But the reality is, is that we are weak and we are dependent, and it's easy to forget that when we're surrounded by the affluence of first world America, right? Or it's easy to ignore when our jobs, you know, put food on the table and then so much more. We forget. But we are utterly dependent on our Heavenly Father. And everything comes from His hand. Remember the Lord's Prayer. Part of it was, give us this day our daily bread. Even coming to our Father, acknowledging that even the food we eat comes from Him. So whether it's food or clothing or shelter, all of it comes from our Heavenly Father's hand. I mean, even our next breath and the next beat of your heart at this very moment comes from his sovereign hand. Paul, in Acts 17, he's in Athens, and he's speaking at the Areopagus, and he's commenting how he's seen all these tombs that they have to all these different gods, and one of them is a tomb to the unknown god. They kind of want to cover all their bases, right? In case they left one out, they don't want to offend any god that they might have left out. And he says, you know, I, I noticed this tomb that you have for the unknown god, and I want to tell you about this unknown god. And this is what he says in 1724 and 25. He says, the god who made the world and everything in it, being lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. I mean, we've just talked about our physical needs and how dependent we are. We haven't even touched on our spiritual needs yet. And we'll talk about that a little later. But I think Jesus, again, he commands us because he knows that we're going to resist prayer due to our, our arrogance and our independence. And he calls us to embrace the humility and dependence of asking, seeking, and knocking. I think he also does because he knows that we're lazy. I mean, let's be honest, right? I mean, a life of prayer requires work. It requires discipline. It requires determination. I mean, again, hear this in Jesus' words. Asking flows from the work of self-reflection and, and identifying your needs. Seeking is rooted in taking action to look for something. And knocking involves perseverance. I mean, prayer involves effort on our part. And Jesus calls us to embrace the blood, the sweat, and the tears of asking, seeking, and knocking. I think he also says it this way because he knows that we're going to, have, we're going to struggle to have faith. I mean, let's face it, we pray to a God whom we cannot see. And even though we know that he's there, we still struggle to believe that he's listening and that he's going to respond to us, right? And I think this is why Jesus gives us such extraordinary encouragement and motivation in verses 7 to 8. Look there again. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. I mean, Jesus is assuring us that not only does our Heavenly Father listen to us, but he also responds. And these things feed our faith and encourage us to go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. So whether it's humility or dependence or action or faith, these are all part of our response to Jesus' exhortation to live a life of prayer, to keep on asking and seeking and knocking. And I think 
little kids are great models for what this can look like. And of course, see now you're going you're to have to deal with this. Now that I have you know a two-year-old and a baby, you're going to have all these examples that revolve around the kids, right? So I'm just going to say from now on, you just need to get over that. <laughs> but but Bella Grace so models this for me. That's my two-year-old. See when I come home from work, and I climb the stairs, which seem to be never-ending in the Rubino townhome, and I get to the top. Inevitably, she is waiting at the gate. And, and, and the first thing she usually says is something like, hi, daddy-o. That's what I get greeted with when I come home. And then right after that, usually what I hear is, daddy cook. <laughs> now, what that means to the untrained ear is that my daughter is saying, daddy, I'd like you to come with me to my play kitchen that's over here in the dining room and maybe cook some grilled cheese or soup or something. Right? She's asking me for something that she needs. She hasn't seen me all day. She wants to spend time with me. Daddy, please pray with me. And usually I'll say, I would love to play with you, Bella. Just give me a few minutes. I'll be right over there. And I'll go in the kitchen, and I'll be looking through mail or whatever I may be doing. And if I don't respond soon enough, I hear the pitter-patter of little feet. <laughs> and Bella seeks me out and comes into the kitchen. And when she, can, when she sees me looking at her, she'll say, Daddy, cook. She, she sought me out when she didn't get her response that she wanted right away. Daddy, I still want you to cook with me. And I'll usually say, I know, Bella, just a few more minutes. Just be patient, little girl. And then if I don't respond soon enough after that, she'll march on over to me, and she'll grab my pants leg, and she'll tug like this, and she'll say, Daddy, cook. That's her version of knocking, you see. She's being persistent. She's persevering. And she's saying, Daddy, remember me? Aren't you going to play with me? And how can I resist that? I mean, at that point, I just, whatever it is I have, I put it down, and, and I'm in there on the floor with the kitchen cooking eggs or something, whatever she wants to cook. That's just such a wonderful picture. Of, uh, I mean, I, in comparison to our Heavenly Father, don't, don't go by my response, but just imagine how your Heavenly Father responds when we ask and seek and knock. But you know, there's, there's something that's underlying Bella's asking and seeking and knocking, and that is trust. You see, she trusts me. She trusts her daddy that I care enough to listen to her. Uh, she trusts I have the power to act and help her with what she wants. She trusts that I love her and I want the very best for her. She trusts that I will always give her good things when she asks them from me. And you see, trust lies at the heart of our motivation to pray. I mean, if we don't trust our Heavenly Father, we're not going to pray to Him. And I think this is why Jesus says what he says next. And again, if you'll turn to verses 9 through 11, we'll look at those. He says, Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And that brings me to my second point, talking about the Father's response of giving good gifts. You see, here Jesus assures us that our Heavenly Father will only 
give us good gifts. He's telling us that our Heavenly Father can be trusted, that He always gives good things to His children, that He always responds with what's best for us. And here's how He makes His point. First, Jesus asks two rhetorical questions. Who gives his kid a stone when they ask for bread? This is the Rubino paraphrase. Who gives his kid a, a snake when they ask for fish? And the implied answer is no one would do that. I mean, we're not, he's not making a statement of universal truth. There are evil parents out there who would do such a thing. But the point is that normally no parent would do that because to do that would be an incredibly cruel trick to play on your child. You see, rocks, small, flat, they look like bread. And usually people ate the fish of the day, they ate eels. So a child could very easily mistake an, a snake for a fish. But the point is, what parent would pull such a cruel joke on one of their children, knowingly put them in harm's way like that? No normal parent would do such a thing. So then Jesus moves on to this, if this is true, then how much more is this argument, right? He says, if you who are evil and left to ourselves, that is what we are, every single one of us. We're fallen, sinful, evil human beings. And he says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, then how much more will your heavenly Father, who's infinitely good, give good gifts to those who ask him? You know, Jesus' argument cuts to the core of the trust issue in two main ways. The first is that it applies the balm of truth to help heal the damage that our earthly fathers may have done. Because I know that there are some of you out there like me who wrestle with trusting your Heavenly Father because you've had such a terrible experience or example from your earthly father. I mean, the reality is, is that for good or for worse, earthly fathers have an enormous impact on how we perceive and respond and view our Heavenly so for many of us, our experience with our earthly fathers have led us to mistrust our heavenly father. I mean, you know what I mean. You're always kind of waiting for the divine hammer to fall, to crush you. You're always expecting a trick instead of a treat. You're always expecting a snake instead of a fish or a stone instead of bread. And Jesus' words here cut through our warped filter and injects truth into our souls that scream out to us that God is not our earthly father. That he is perfect in every way, that he is infinitely good and faithful, that in Christ he loves us more than we could possibly imagine, that he will never fail or forsake us, that he can be trusted, and that as his children we need never fear in approaching him. I mean, what if we really believed these things about our Heavenly Father? Would there be anyone who, would never, who, would, who wouldn't approach Him? Who wouldn't pray to Him? Jesus' words kind of cut to the trust issue in, in another way. 
because he kind of serves as our optometrist here, because he, he enables us to view things through the lens of the gospel of grace, right? Because it doesn't always seem like, if we're honest, that we're receiving good gifts from our Father. There are times that we pray for good things and they never seem to come. And there are times that we beg to be delivered from circumstances or a situation and we still have to walk through it. And there are times that we plead for a positive outcome and the very worst case scenario seems to fall on our plate. And Jesus here reminds us and encourages us that our Heavenly Father always gives good gifts, that in some unseen, mysterious way, our good and faithful Father gives us what is best, even when his answer is, is a no or a not yet, even when his response involves suffering or even death. Jesus encourages us that we can trust our Heavenly Father, that every response from his throne room though we wrestle and strain and struggle to see or understand that every response from the divine throne room is bathed in our Heavenly Father's perfect love and wisdom. Now, that's easy to know in our heads, but it is very difficult to apply when the rubber meets the road in our lives, right? I mean, sometimes we can look back and see how something that we went through that was painful, how it was best for us. But most times, we kind of feel that sting of mystery. And we just cling to the hope that one day we will understand why the tapestry was woven the way that it was. You know, another thing to mention in light of these things is, you know, this passage isn't a blank check for us either. In other words, we can't just ask God for whatever we want and expect him to give it to us. Everything has to be submitted to his sovereign will because he is the sovereign ruler of the universe and not us, right? I mean, remember Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane? He prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And his father, Father's will was done the next day because the next day, the Father allowed his Son to be crushed for our iniquities on the cross. So, beloved, if, if the Son showed such humility in submitting to the Father's will when he made his request, how much more should we? If, if the Son showed so much trust in the love and the wisdom of his Father, how much more should we? I mean, quite frankly, I'm glad that the Father hasn't given me everything I've asked for. Because like I said, and like you know, I'm a fallen human being, and besides that, I'm a knucklehead. Okay, And I would rather trust my Heavenly Father to make the call about my request than myself. I mean, he's better qualified to do that, isn't he? I mean, am I all-knowing? Do I possess all wisdom? Am I perfectly good and loving? Am I a holy, holy, holy God? Am I the one that sits outside of time and determines... The end from the beginning, no, I'm not. I mean, if my Heavenly Father had given me some of the good gifts I asked for in the past, my life would look a whole lot different than it does today. 
I would have married two or three other women before I ever even met Christine. And I can tell you this, I certainly would never have been a pastor. I mean, who knows how many times my Heavenly Father has spared me from the good gifts that I asked of him. But this kind of brings up two important questions. You know, what things should I be asking, seeking, and knocking about or for? And what good gifts is Jesus talking about? Well, I, I certainly think that physical needs are included in this. But I also think that spiritual needs are definitely included in, in, in Jesus' mind when he's saying, teaching these things. And I say that because, you know, we're nearing the end of the Sermon of the Mount, and the overall theme has been God's kingdom and what kingdom righteousness looks like. And the tension has been building for us, hasn't it, throughout this sermon? More and more we feel the weight of the demands of that kingdom righteousness and we see how sinful and unworthy we are and we ask ourselves, who can live out this Sermon on the Mount? Who can possibly do this? Who could possibly live up to these standards? And the first result of our wrestling with that is that we realize that our righteousness will never exceed that of the Pharisees and that our only hope of escaping the Father's judgment is to be covered in the righteousness of his son. See, but it, the other result is to humble us and to point out our divine need of help. Because the reality is, the only way that we're going to manifest, manifest kingdom righteousness in this life is if the Father sanctifies us. That is, if he conforms us more and more to the image of Christ. I think spiritual needs are very much in view here too because if you've read Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount, instead of him ending with saying the Father gives good gifts to those who ask, Luke says in chapter 11, I think it is, he finishes by saying that the Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. See, the Sermon on the Mount is all about pursuing kingdom holiness and righteousness and our only hope of doing this lies in receiving the good gifts of our Heavenly Father's grace and his power given to us through the Holy Spirit. And this brings up my next point. So let's talk about the Spirit's work in sanctifying our selfishness. You're pretty excited about this next point, aren't you? <laughs> let's take a look at verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Well, here it is, the golden rule, right? Even today, even today in today's world, the golden rule is championed. Have you ever wondered why it's called the golden rule? Well, I found out that it's called the golden rule because Emperor Alexander Severus, who live in the 200s, reportedly had these words from verse 12 printed on one of his walls in gold. And thence it was called the golden rule. And you might also be interested to know that the general principle didn't originate uh, with Jesus. For example, uh, Rabbi Hillel in around 20 BC, when he was asked uh, to summarize the law, kind of said the golden rule in a negative form. He said, what is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law 
The rest is only commentary. But Jesus seems to be the first to state it positively. Love others as yourself. Treat others as you would like to be treated. And I think his positive version is much more demanding. Because, I mean, if you don't want to act hatefully towards someone else, all you can do is just avoid them, right? I mean, that's easy. But Jesus' positive version requires us to be proactive, right? It requires us to engage with those around us, to be deliberate in identifying uh, their needs and intentional in meeting their needs and serving them and not turning a blind eye to those needs. I, I, I believe that this verse follows the section on asking, seeking, and knocking because it is so difficult for us to do this. I mean, on the one hand, Jesus is talking about how, having, how to treat others. And this is on the heels of him talking about specific ways of treating others, right? We talked about judging, and we talked about correcting others. And this is kind of a summary statement of that, of a general principle. But I also think that it follows the section on prayer because we will never love others in this way apart from prayer. I say that because we're all too selfish and self-centered to do it on our own. Selfishness, self-centeredness, you throw in arrogance, you have the trifecta that lies at the core of our sinful nature, right? I mean, what is sin but selfishness, self-centeredness, and arrogance? I mean, every sin we commit oozes these things. Whenever we sin, we in effect say, I don't care what God says, I want to do this. Or we say, I'm going to do what I want to do regardless of the impact on others. Or, I know better than you do, God. I know what's best for me. Right? I mean, it started with our first parents, Adam and Eve, and we've inherited their sinful tradition. So I think putting others before ourselves and loving them as ourselves is so difficult because it conflicts with that the core of our sinful nature. And if left to ourselves, the sinful nature would win every single time. You know, I don't really think that we have a clue either how pervasive our selfishness and self-centeredness really is. You know, before I got married, for example, you know, I, I thought I was a pretty good guy, right? But... Living in such an intimate relationship is like a spotlight for sin, right? Because suddenly you have this person who is so close to you and knows you so well, they know what you're really like. Beyond the public persona, right? Behind closed doors. Suddenly there's someone who sees all too clearly the sin that you have very conveniently blinded yourself to, right? And all of a sudden, there's someone who can expose how selfish you really are. And it shows up, you know, in a hundred little things and not so little things. You know, not that I, you know, have any personal experience, but, you know, it could be in your unwillingness to go to a particular restaurant that your spouse wants to go to, or resisting sharing a couple bites of your meal. It could be your persistence in leaving your junk on the dining room table, even though you know that it really bothers her. Or it could be your goal of trying to win an argument instead of listening and understanding and responding to her or his needs. Well, here's another little thing. Maybe it looks like this. 
whenever you're asked to help or do something. And then having kids makes that spotlight even brighter, right, on your sin, because then putting others before yourself, which was the exception, kind of when you're married, suddenly it's this constant, unyielding demand, right? And you find yourself having to fight back these feelings of resentment and praying for the clock to move faster for the next nap time or bedtime to come so you could have some time to yourself, right? Am I, I mean, not that you have any idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> of course you do. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And that's why when Jesus calls us to love others as ourselves, we're all struck with the weight of that demand. And we think to ourselves, how is this even possible? I mean, what hope do we have to overcome our selfishness and self-centeredness? I mean, sure, we may be able to put others before us on occasion, but as a lifestyle? And, you know, how does it become something that we actually enjoy doing instead of this heavy burden or this obligation that we find resenting? We find we're resenting. Brothers and sisters, we have to ask, seek, and knock and turn to our Heavenly Father in prayer and ask Him to shower us with His good gifts, like His good gift of cleansing in the blood of Christ for all those times that we miserably fall short of loving others as ourselves, for His gift of grace to even help us to desire to want to change and put others before ourselves, His gift of the Holy Spirit who changes our hearts and desires, who empowers us to turn away from serving ourselves and works in us to sanctify that selfishness and self-centeredness and transform it into caring and sacrificing and loving and serving others more than we do ourselves. I mean, are you struggling to love others as yourself? I know you are. Let the words of James in his book in chapter 4 be encouragement to us. For he says, we have not because we ask not. Loving others as ourselves comes from asking and seeking and knocking. It never flows from prayerlessness. So I want to finish by asking a question this morning of all of us, myself included. Will Jesus rouse us from our prayerlessness this morning? Consider how scandalous Jesus' words are. I want you to just think about, you know, from a first century Jewish perspective, who had access to God? It was just one person. It was the high priest. And it was on one day, the Day of Atonement. See, on that Day of Atonement, the high priest would make atonement for his sins, and he'd make atonement for the sins of the people and, and lots of other rituals. And on that day alone, the high priest was permitted to go behind the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, which was the place that God himself, his presence, dwelled. He went behind that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the tabernacle. There was one man on one day who had access to God's presence. I mean, the Jews saw God as being so holy 
that this kind of tradition about the high priest on the Day of Atonement kind of came up. And the tradition was that the high priest on the Day of Atonement would tie bells around his waist and he'd tie a rope to his ankle. Why? Because if the high priest went into the Holy of Holies where God's presence was, and God did not accept his atonement for his sins, and God struck the high priest down, the priest outside would hear the bells hit the floor and know that they had to pull the high priest out with the rope. And can you imagine in that context how scandalous Jesus' words were? Because he was saying that thrice holy God, that God behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies, that's the one that we should call Father. And that's the one that we should make approach with and make our requests and that he will respond to us. I mean, how could Jesus say such things? He could say them because he knew that his death on the cross would grant us access. Do you remember one of the things that happens when Jesus dies? Matthew tells us in chapter 27. He tells us that one of the things when Jesus dies is that the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies with the rest of the tabernacle. That curtain, when Jesus died, tore in half from top to bottom. Why? Because the separation between God and his people was no more. I mean, the very one who exhorts us to go to the Father, Jesus, is the same one whose blood has made it possible for us to even call him Father. It's his blood that has granted us access to our Heavenly Father's throne room. What a costly price that was paid for such a privilege. I mean, how, how could we not pray? I consider, too, how Jesus is the Father's greatest of greatest good gifts to us. I mean, Romans 5 tells us that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still poor, helpless, wretched sinners, while we were still children of wrath, as Ephesians tells us, while we were still slaves to our sin, our re rebellion, and our disobedience, when we would never ask for such a gift, that was when Christ died for us. I mean, how can we not trust a God who would do such a thing? I mean, if our Heavenly Father didn't even withhold sacrificing His only Son to meet our greatest need, why would we think that he would turn a deaf ear or a blind eye to our lesser needs? I mean, can't we look at Jesus on the cross and see what good came from such a horrible thing and trust that our Heavenly Father will always give us good things? That even when we struggle and strain and see, to, to try and see and understand that he always gives us what's best. And also consider the example of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, who veiled his glory by putting on a body of flesh, 
who came not to be served, not, not to be served, but to serve, who allowed himself to be judged and mocked and spit upon and beaten and nailed to a cross by sinful men who suffered not only the pains of death, but the fury and wrath of our eternal punishment. Why? So that our sins could be forgiven and we could be adopted by our Heavenly Father. I mean, shouldn't such unlovable people as ourselves, who have been shown such amazing love, should we of all people not be motivated to love others? And should we of all people know that we can pray for the power to do this with confidence because we know that that same Jesus right now is up in heaven at the right hand of God as our high priest interceding for us. And that when we don't even have the words to pray, he sends the Holy Spirit to intercede for us then too. Beloved, let us turn to our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the Father's greatest of greatest good gifts to us. And he is both the means and the motivation for all our asking, seeking, and knocking. Please pray with me. Father, I, uh, I pray that your words this morning would not fall to the ground. I pray that they would stir our hearts, especially my own, and that we would enjoy a new season of deep, intimate, powerful prayer with you, our Heavenly Father. And we thank you that that is even possible. And we know why it is. We know that it's possible only because of the blood of your Son and his righteousness that has become ours. That is our access to your ear. And we thank you for him. And I pray all these things in the name of that Son of whom I speak, Jesus Christ. Amen.